Welcome to Sermon Audio from King Street Church, where it's our purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. For more information about our church, please visit our website at kingstreetchurch.com. As we open up the Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. One of the realizations that people have during a pandemic is that they're not in control. They can't control if they're allowed to go to work, They're allowed to go to their favorite restaurant or their favorite retail shop. They can't even control their own health to the fullest extent that we want to be able to. I think that's why you see so much greed and panic and fear at play in in our culture when these things happen. Because when we feel out of control, we're tempted to grasp it in some kind of way, to reach for it, find whatever, whatever thing we can have to grasp some level of control over the next few weeks when everything else seems out of place. And in the midst of widespread sickness, specifically with a virus, with a disease like this, people are faced with the final fear that they have that no one can control. The thing that we try to delay, but that we will all ultimately succumb to, death. We're going to be in our text for this morning for the next couple of weeks because I want us to take this passage slow. I want us to see all the details that are here to see. Of course, we won't be able to cover all of them. I want us to see as much as we can. And I want us to talk about them with each other throughout the week. That's not just me asking you to do that. That's Paul. Paul says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So let's let's do this together. So we're going to take the next two or three weeks to walk through these several verses here in chapter 4. It's a meditation on the hope that we have in death because we as Christians have the hope of the resurrection. That, that last thing that we have to face on this side of eternity, death, we have a hope in it. We have the hope of resurrection. We serve a resurrected Lord who is returning to grab His people, to take His people with Him. This is a hope based on the return of Jesus. And this hope is shared only by those who trust in Christ. And so my charge to you, Christian, listening to this 
sermon is to meditate deeply on these truths, to meditate prayerfully on them and encourage one another, but also call your neighbors and your friends to share with you in this hope that you have in Christ so that they would have hope in Christ in the midst of death as well. They don't have to be afraid of death. They don't have to be afraid of pandemics if they know the one who raises the dead. If they know the one from whom we can never be separated, no sickness, no death can separate us from the love of Christ. and We will rise and be with him. So have this hope in yourself, friends, and then encourage others with it. Now, before we begin diving deeper into all the details of the passage, I want us to observe why it's even here. Why does Paul even write verses 13 through 18 here in chapter 4? Is there some kind of design in his mind? And the answer to that question is yes. Of course, has a, of course Paul has a purpose in writing this. If we ever read anything of Paul and thought, man, this guy is just aimlessly talking, of course not. Paul has a deep purpose here, and his design in writing these verses is to comfort the Thessalonians, to comfort them by teaching and expounding on this truth of Christ's return and the hope of resurrection. And we know that because the text itself begins with comfort, and the text ends with comfort. It's book-ended with a, with a purpose of comfort, and a call to comfort one another. So look at verse 13, the beginning of this passage. Here's what Paul says. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. So Paul's writing to inform them. Now keep in mind, I'm sure the Thessalonians knew about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and how we share in that hope of resurrection. This is not top-shelf cookies. I don't know if you know what I mean when I say that. Bottom-shelf cookies are the things that toddlers can get to, right? The hope of resurrection, the hope of eternal life in Christ is not top-shelf cookies. This is bottom-shelf cookies. This is toddlers, infants, babes in Christ know this. So this would have been something that Paul would have preached and taught when he was there in Thessalonica. I can't imagine him not. But he's informing them even more. Because we can often become so forgetful and we need to be reminded of God's promises. We need to be reminded when grief comes and suffering comes about the truth that we already know. I, I once heard a quote that 90% of discipleship is reminding Christians of what they already know. There's a lot of teaching new stuff, but 90% of it is teaching Christians what they already know. And here's Paul informing them of something that would have been baseline in the Christian faith. And Paul is informing them for a purpose. And that purpose is so that they do not grieve as the rest do who have no hope. So he wants to inform them with this doctrine about Christ's return in a way that comforts their hearts and their minds in the midst of grief. Now that's a challenge to us to think through how and why we encourage one another, how and why we inform one another rather. Because I think there's a tendency 
For, for those of us who just love diving deeper into theology and doctrines like this, Christ's return. And we want to inform others about it for what purpose? Sometimes to make ourselves look more knowledgeable. Sometimes to feel holier than others. Those are, those are wicked reasons. Sometimes we do it just to fill people's brains with, with the facts. But Paul's informing Paul is informing for the purpose of comforting Christians. He always has in mind presenting them complete in Christ, helping them to become edified and more faithful and more holy. And so that's what he's doing. He's, he's informing for the purpose of comfort. So the text begins with comfort. I hope you see it there. And it also ends with comfort. Look at verse 18. Therefore, after all these things, that Paul writes about the return of Christ, comfort one another with these words. So all these words in this passage, Paul's writing them himself to comfort them, but then he wants the Thessalonians to grab a hold of these things themselves and to preach, these, and, and to preach this truth to one another, to comfort one another with this truth. And friends, this is the challenge for you and I. Could there be any more clear command than verse 18? Comfort one another with these words. <laughs> That's what you should do this week. That's what I should do this week. We should pick up the phone, FaceTime, go on a walk, share these truths to give hope and consolation in the midst of trial. So that's the point of this text. We can't lose sight of that because when we start talking about the return of Christ, sometimes people just want to butt heads on this. The purpose here is comfort. The purpose here is being encouraged in our faith in the midst of grief. We ought to be comforted by the hope of resurrection, comforted when our Lord Jesus returns. This morning, we're going to look primarily in this text at verse 13. And we're going to hone in on three things that this text mentions or brings up that we need to define and that we need to understand. So I'm going to read verse 13, and then I'll lay out those three focuses for this morning. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. Three things in this text that we need to look at. Here they are. First, what does Paul mean by those who are asleep? Strange way to put it. What does asleep mean here? Second, we want to look at the word grieve. What does Christian grief look like? Can Christians grieve? And lastly, we want to focus on the phrase, no hope. What is meant by the rest who have no hope? So there you go, three things, asleep, grief, and no hope. If you're watching this on Facebook Live, I think those questions should be posted in the comments there for you to help you follow along. So let's begin with the first one as it appears in verse 13. It's the most natural place to start. What does Paul mean by the word asleep here? He doesn't want them to be uninformed about those who are asleep. 
So neither should we be uninformed about those who are asleep. And to even know what in the world Paul is talking about here, we have to make sense of his vocabulary. Understand the word, understanding the word asleep is our first task. It's the first task at hand. Now we can see from the immediate context, as well as from the rest of the Bible, that Paul is talking about those Christians who have died. Now, how do we know this? Let's, let's look at the immediate context. Let's look at the words, the verses surrounding verse 13, this whole passage, and see if we get a clue here. And first of all, in verse 13, Paul is informing those, is informing them about those who are asleep to comfort them in their what? In their grief. I don't know about you, but I have never grieved in my entire life about someone who went to bed. So it's obvious that this grief has to do with something much more tragic. Something much more horrific and hard. Something that brings suffering and affliction. And it's dealing with death. Now that idea of death is explicitly stated in verse 16 in our text. So we're still in the immediate context here. And here's verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's Paul defining this word for us. The asleep are the dead in Christ. So the immediate context of our passage explains the term itself. Paul's talking about those who are dead, Christians who have passed away. But he may have gotten this language from Jesus himself. So just think about John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, we have the story of Jesus and Lazarus. And in verses 11 through 14, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. Here's this little conversation they have. And after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. There it is. But I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. And the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I think this is so very important. Jesus, if if we remember, is the one who went to Jairus' little daughter and told all the people in Mark chapter 5, Why are you all weeping? Don't you know that the child is just asleep? And then what do they do? They they chuckle and they mock him and they laugh. But then Jesus walks into the house. He goes into the room where he sees her dead and lifeless and cold body. And he grabs her hand and he simply says, Talitha kum. Which means, little girl, get up. And instantly she gets up. And she's walking around and she's doing fine. He tells him, to give her some food. (laughs) 
You see, to Jesus, raising people from the dead is as easy as waking people up from their sleep. That's why he said in John chapter 11, Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of his sleep. That's what it's like for Jesus to raise someone from the dead. A little hand pull, a little tug, a little command to get up, and instantly this, this girl, Jairus' daughter, raises from the dead. And in the same way, Jesus said Lazarus was asleep when Lazarus was dead. And it was nothing for Jesus to bring him back to life. And so when he finally gets to the tomb where Lazarus is laying, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. Friends, can you imagine if you and I tried this? And we went to someone, we said, come forth. We went to a grave and said, come forth. We would fail miserably. But to Jesus, it's as though Lazarus had only fallen asleep. So the hope and the comfort and the consolation that Paul is trying to give in this text is that the dead in Christ are, in this sense, just asleep. Christ will raise them up. Now, I want to make two clarifying points here in this passage because they might come to mind for you. And here's the first one. When Paul talks about those who are asleep, he's not talking about this doctrine that is often called soul sleep. Maybe you've heard that, maybe you haven't. Soul sleep is the doctrine that teaches that as soon as you die, as soon as you die, your soul, your consciousness goes to sleep. And the very next thing that you experience is the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and the new earth. Like you're sort of transported to the end. Now that understanding of what happens when we die is not biblical. We don't, we don't die and then fast forward until the time of the resurrection of our bodies. I just want you to think about a few texts in the Bible. Think about Jesus on the cross. And there were... Two men who were crucified, two criminals crucified next to him. One on his left, one on his right. And one of these criminals had trusted in Christ, this thief on the cross, in his dying hour, trusts in Christ. And this is what Jesus says to that man. He says, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Today, not 2,000 years from now or however long it takes until the end, but today. So that thief on the cross, though his body was in the ground, he was consciously with Jesus the moment that he died. Or think about the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. I, I don't think it could be any more clear than this text. He says, we're of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Do you see that? Paul's talking about what happens to us consciously when we are absent from the body. There will come a day when our bodies resurrect and we are given glorified bodies, but that's not the first thing we experience when we die if we're in Christ. Because Paul says there is a conscious experience of being absent from the body. So we haven't been given glorified ones. We're separated from the body, but we are present with the Lord. 
So I say all of that to nullify the confusion that when Paul says asleep, he doesn't mean so asleep. Those who are asleep are truly absent from the body, but they are truly, really, consciously present with Christ. If you look at their bodies, they look asleep. They're in their graves. And their bodies will be raised to life. As easy as it is to wake somebody up from their sleep, Christ will come and raise them. But currently, those who are dead in Christ are absent from the body and present with the Lord in a conscious presence with the Lord. And the last clarification I just want to make is this. In verse 16, it says that those who are asleep, they're defined as those who are dead in Christ. And it's vital that we make that clear because this hope of resurrection does not apply across the board to every single individual, regardless of your faith or or lack of faith in Christ. You can't just apply this text to anyone who passes. We apply this text to those who are dead in Christ, meaning those who are united to Him. They've been united to Him in this life through faith, Because they've trusted in Christ, now in death, while asleep, while absent from the body, they remain united to Him. They are dead in Christ. Do you see that? So if you're listening to this sermon, it would do you no good if I didn't forewarn you that that, that, that it's only the dead in Christ who have this hope of Christ's return working for their eternal good. Verse 17 in our text applies to Christians, those who trust in Christ for salvation. It says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Those who do not know Christ will not always be with the Lord, they will face his judgment. I want you to have this hope of resurrection. And if you want this hope of resurrection, this hope of eternal life, the hope of being absent in body but present with the Lord and always being with the Lord when He returns, then trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins to be made right with God, not on the basis of your works, but on the basis of His perfect life laid down in your place on the cross paying the penalty for your sin. Those who are united to Jesus through faith in this life will be united to Him in their death and resurrection. So that's all we're going to say about those who are asleep. Paul's referring to Christians who have died. Christians who are currently absent from the body, but who are present with the Lord. The next thing that we want to focus on this morning is the word grieve. So let's read verse 13 again. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. I want you to notice for a second what Paul does not say here. He does not say 
that he's informing the Thessalonians so that they won't grieve, period. He says he's informing them so that they won't grieve like the rest who have no hope. You see, the challenge here is not to be devoid of human emotions like some robot. The challenge is to grieve, not like hopeless people, but to grieve like hopeful people. Being a Christian and holding firm to the promises of God and understanding what the Bible teaches in its doctrine and its theology does not mean that you are indifferent and passive and unfeeling and unaffectionate people because you ought to just remember the promises and get over all the pain. No. There's something seriously wrong with a heart that thinks losing a loved one in the Lord should just be shrugged off without a tear. Dear friends, it is okay to cry. It is okay to grieve. It is not a sin to be sad when you lose someone in the Lord that meant so much to you. Just think about Jesus. He was fully aware that He was about to raise Lazarus from the grave, wasn't He? Not only is He omniscient, He knew He was about to do this Himself. Yet what did He do? He wept. He wept over the death of His friend. But Jesus wasn't overcome with grief. It was a grief mixed with hope. And there's a massive difference between hopeless grieving and hopeful grieving. I think about John Calvin, and he, he wrote about this verse in one of his commentaries on 1 Thessalonians. And he mentions bringing grief into submission before God. We should bring our grief in submission before God. But he also drastically opposes those who would just devoid themselves of rightful human emotions. So, so here's what he says. Let me just read to you what he says in his commentary. It's one thing to bridle our grief that it may be made subject to God, which it should. But it's quite another thing to harden oneself so as to be like stones by casting away human feelings. Let, therefore, the grief of the pious be mixed with consolation or comfort. In other words, don't be like stones. We serve a Lord who was moved to compassion when He saw the multitudes. We serve a Lord who wept when His friend Lazarus died, who was moved with so much love that He laid down His life for His people. He is the furthest thing from a stone in His affections. Hope doesn't make us robots, friends, just because we program our brains with truth. What it does is it makes us complex people, makes us people who can grieve, but also be comforted in the Lord at the same time. That's why Calvin said, let the grief of the pious be mixed with consolation. Friends, let me just say this. I don't, I don't know to what extent everyone listening to this 
to what extent uh, of pain you're going through in your life right now. I don't know if you've recently lost a loved one. And I don't know, and no one knows, you don't know how soon it will be before you do lose a loved one. But as believers, when we lose someone in the Lord, I just want to say this. Grieve. Cry. Sob your eyes out until there's not even a tear left to drop from them. And we shouldn't be bad friends and bad church members just expecting people to get over it because you know the truth, right? It's okay to work through the suffering. But we work through that suffering by encouraging one another and comforting one another with the hope that Paul supplies. Yes, grieve, but at the same time, let's help each other season our grief with comfort. Let's help each other season our grief, mix it with consolation, as Calvin says. Why? So that we don't just stay in that state and become useless so that we would go and we would be an encouragement to others who are grieving, so we would be a light for Christ to others, so we would show people who have no hope what it looks like to have hope because we know Christ. Let's call one another to this. But we can show the world, we can show a beautiful testimony to the world what it looks like to cry tears, real tears, but to have so much hope in our hearts because we know what lies ahead of us. What a wonderful testimony that would be, especially in the midst of a pandemic like we're in today. And our last focus this morning that we'll close with is on that final phrase in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. The contrast made between the Christian in their grief and the unbeliever in their grief is hope. The Christian grieves as one with hope. The unbeliever grieves as one with no hope. Now there's a couple ways that you could interpret that phrase, those who have no hope. One way is this. Some people are genuinely just terrified of death and they will admit openly to you that they don't have any hope. Maybe that's you listening to this. If so, I really hope that you are encouraged in this text with the hope of Christ so that you can have hope. But that's one way to explain those who have no hope, people who are, are genuinely afraid of what's on the other side and they just simply don't know and they're scared, or they're fearful, or they're anxious, and in that sense, they have no hope. But then there are those who presumably have hope. They claim to have hope. They follow a religion or a worldview that gives them some type of expectation of an afterlife. Because just think about it, friends. Suicide bombers have hope. It's a false hope but they claim to have hope. The problem there is that their hope is not well-founded and that they are completely devoid of the only true hope that we can have in this life. 
the only true hope that we can have in death. And so in that sense, Paul is right to say they are still without hope. Look at what Ephesians 2.12 says. This applies to everybody before becoming a Christian. No matter what religion you follow, no matter if you're an agnostic, no matter if you're an atheist, this is just the absolute fact. Ephesians 2.12 says this about those who are or who were separated from Christ. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. To have no hope, my friends, is to be without God, to be cut off from Him, to be cut off from His promises and His people, to be enemies of God, to be not recipients of His grace and mercy, but recipients of His anger and wrath. Everyone in that state is without hope, even if they think they have it. Those without hope in Christ have no hope at all. Here's 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9. And it tells us, it tells us why in death those who don't trust in Christ would be without hope. And this is a drastic reality that doesn't have to continue to be a reality for you if you trust in Him. So here it is, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-9. through For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Paying out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These, verse 9, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That is what awaits those who have no hope. That is why death is a fearful, fearful thing. But it doesn't have to be. Friends, just consider the world that we live in today and that there are so many people who are without hope. The reality is in America, people are afraid. People are scared. People are anxious. People are worried. And fear overcomes us when it comes to jobs and livelihoods and families and sometimes even politics. People are fearful of sickness and death. The tricky thing is that most people in America often have more resources than people in other countries or other places of the world to cover up all this fear. But you have to know that none of our homes, none of our houses, none of our 401ks, none of our savings accounts, none of it is worth a cent in eternity when it comes to a hope that counts and a hope that lasts. And if we're honest with ourselves, 
This pandemic is not creating in people a new lack of hope. It's exposing the lack of hope that has always existed. And with people getting sick and with people dying all around us, at least in the way that it's being publicized today, so it's right in front of our face. Soon as we turn on social media, soon as we turn on the TV, where can we have hope in the midst of this death? Where can we have hope in the midst of this pandemic that threatens us? Friends, you can have the hope of being absent from the body and being present with the Lord. The hope of our returning Lord and Savior, the hope of resurrection, the hope of ultimate salvation, the hope of being preserved and kept and saved by God, having an inheritance that never fades, that never crashes, but that is kept in heaven and never passes away. Allow me just to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9 through 9 for you in closing. Be a great text to memorize. Be another great text to encourage and comfort one another with in this trial. And as you hear this read, Christians, I just want you to be encouraged by the living hope that you have in the midst of this crisis. I want to encourage you to comfort one another with this truth and to display it to a broken world that is in need of good news, that is in need of hope right now. We're all looking for it, something good, something good to help us get through. You have that, Christian, and it's displayed in this passage. I want you to take note of that. And for those who don't have this hope in Christ, our prayer is that you would be able to join us in it. We don't want this all to ourselves. We want you to join us in this hope. That you would find your hope and your salvation in Jesus Christ. And so as I read this, friend, if you have been cut to the heart by God's word this morning, send us a message. Reach out to us. Let us know. We want to talk to you about your faith. We want to talk to you more about what it looks like to have the hope in a returning Savior. The hope of resurrection. So here's, here's this passage, 1 Peter 1, 3-9, and we'll close with this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what end? to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected. Those who have this inheritance are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That's us. We've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, 
you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Friends, let's pray.